I, I didn't walk around because I've, I've actually just got allergies, but everybody looks at you like, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to poison their whole family, so I stayed back. But okay, today we're going uh, to be jumping back after we had like a three-week detour, uh, and now we're going to be jumping back into our main text in James, and this is our faith series. Uh, so we're going to be starting back in chapter three. Now just to recap, uh, this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, um, and it was written to the Jews who had believed who were scattered all over Palestine, and they were being heavily persecuted by everybody um, at that time, and so he was writing just to encourage them to keep standing strong, and he was trying to teach them how to do that. Now today we're going to discuss how James warned his readers about two main things. This is a really cool section of James. Uh, the first warning is to uh, the teachers of God's Word, or those who aspired to be teachers of God's Word. That was the first warning. Uh, and the second warning was, to, uh, was about the impact that our, uh, the tongue or our words that we speak have in our lives and the lives of other people. So there's a lot here. Um, now these warnings could be applicable to both teachers and believers in general, but there's just a lot here. Uh, I call this message Taming the Tongue uh, because all people are born equipped with an ability that can be a blessing or it can be a curse. And that ability is the ability to verbally communicate or to talk. Now, uh, when we share the gospel, when we use uh, our words to do positive things and to uplift people, then, then it's a blessing. But when we use our words to gossip or insult or attack people or lie or stir the pot or, you know, etc., then it can be a curse. So let's jump right in. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, in the New Testament churches, when they first got going, they would allow several men to get up and speak during a service. They would allow them to speak or teach uh, during a service. And because of that practice, because they were allowing so many people to get up and speak, false teaching became pretty commonplace. People would sneak up and, and say things they shouldn't. And at that time, here's what some of the false teachers were teaching, some of the doctrines that they encountered. Uh, some people would come in from those pagan churches, and they would claim to have divine prophecy that, only, that God was basically just sharing with them. They would make that claim. Uh, and some claimed to speak mythical and mystical languages that only they and God and a few other people knew. Some of them claimed that. Uh, some would claim that they had the apostolic ability to still heal and perform miracles like the apostles had done. So there was a lot of it going on. I'm just listening to a few of the false teachings. There were many more than that. But one thing you're going to find is that all of these false teachers had one common denominator. One common denominator. They used their false teaching to gain power, praise, and profit. That's what they were using it for. Okay? And that was pretty much every false teacher you came across. See, they all wanted to take advantage of these loving people in this new Jesus movement because they were so gracious and loving, and they wanted to take advantage of them. They looked like an easy target. So they were trying to uh, take advantage of those people. Now, James wanted people to know that God wasn't going to tolerate false teaching from anybody. Believer, unbeliever, he wasn't going to tolerate it. Now, James wasn't warning the unbelievers, I mean, it wasn't just the unbelievers who were intentionally trying to false teach uh, that he was warning. Uh, he was warning anyone who may have aspirations to teach, anybody, whether believer, unbeliever, he was warning them to be cautious. And he warned them that because um, those who teach God's word, he flat says, they, they incur a stricter judgment. God has a stricter judgment for those people, okay? Because when you, when you teach the scriptures, whether you know it or not, you are claiming to be speaking on behalf of God himself. That's what you're claiming. And God takes the teaching of his word very, very seriously. He takes those who say that they are speaking on his behalf very, very seriously. So all the teachers should also. Now, I have a great example of this. 
Uh, Moses was a great example of someone who, uh, you know, God had to, had to teach just how serious it was to malign his word. See, Moses had a tough road to hoe here. I mean, it was rough. He had, you know, probably over a million people following him, okay? And they were an obstinate people. They loved to complain, they loved to whine, and they loved to whine and complain to Moses. And I don't know about you, but when somebody constantly whines to you, it drives you crazy. Parents, you know. And they constantly whined to him. Well, they're out in the middle of the desert. He's trying to lead them through to the promised land. And they ran out of fresh water. Now, this had happened before, but God had taken care of it. But they started running out of fresh water. And true to form, instead of trusting God, who had already provided for them amazingly, they just went to Moses and started whining about it. Now, Moses was absolutely sick of their whining. He was sick of it. So he did go to God on their behalf. But to be honest, he went to God on their behalf Still a little miffed when he got there. He was still mad at him. But here's the thing. God was not angry. God's patient. And he gave Moses a very simple but gracious solution. Listen to this. Uh, Numbers 20, starting in verse 8. God said, take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. Now pay attention to that. Speak to the rock before their eyes, uh, that it may yield its water. Uh, you shall thus bring forth water from them out of the rock and let the congregations and their beasts drink. But see, Moses was still mad at Israel. God gave him this solution. He's like, I still haven't got my jab in. He was still mad and he was just dying to get at him. He wanted to teach him a lesson. So he thought he would use God's word a little differently. He modified it just a little bit so he could kill two birds with one stone, right? And the two birds he wanted to kill was he did want to get him the water that God asked for. But he also wanted to, you know, kind of dig at him a little bit and and make him pay. He still wanted him, you know, to scold him a little bit. Look at this, Numbers 29 through 11. So Moses took the rod from before uh, the Lord as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. (laughs) Did God tell him to say that? You know, he's adding some things here, right? He says, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Did you hear that? Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Verse 11. Then Moses lifted up his hand and did what? Struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Okay? Now, he misrepresented God's word here. As God's representative, he was supposed to do exactly what God asked him to do. When God tells you something, it's the same as when you're reading it from the Scripture, because that's the breath of God. God was telling Moses, here's what you do, and Moses didn't do it. He changed God's word. He was supposed to follow God's, I mean, God's commands to the letter, but he didn't. And because he didn't, he paid for it, because God takes that seriously. Look at Numbers 20, verse 12. It says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me, as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, God literally had to take Moses' life for this. That's how serious he took it. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't understand why that's, why he had to take God's, you know, why God had to take Moses' life. Well, that rock had some great symbolism, and I'd love to go in depth into what it Uh, you know, all the things it meant. But a couple things that were very symbolic about that rock that he was hoping Israel would catch on to was it was supposed to be a picture of Jesus. 
Jesus is the rock of our salvation and the giver of the water of life. Whoever will, let them come and take of the water of life freely, is what Revelations tells us. That was supposed to be a picture of Jesus. And he said, speak to it. So Moses goes up and strikes the rock, and because he did that, it appeared to the people in the crowd that it was Moses and Aaron that was delivering the water to them, not God. And God knew what those people would do. I mean, look at their history. They worshiped all kinds of false gods throughout the centuries. And they knew that Moses would become an idol of worship to them. They knew it. God knew that if he let them live, that people would worship him. It said that God even hid his bones. No one knew where Moses was buried because he didn't want them even coming to get the bones and making a shrine out of it. So that's how serious God takes the teaching of his word. And yeah, Moses did this out of anger. But be honest, how many times have you done something you totally regret, especially with your mouth, out of anger? Has anybody here ever let their mouth, when they're angry, get them in trouble? Anybody? Not me, but I've heard of people. You know, shame on them. But uh, yeah, that, that's what happened. So that's how serious God takes it. Now, today we still have false teachers. It's still a problem in the churches. It's still a problem, and it's a struggle for me. And my wife always yells at me, and she, when I'm watching TV, if one of them's on, I'll watch to see what they're saying. And I get fuming, and my wife's like, would you shut it off? You're not, like, chained. Shut it off. But it's still a problem. Uh, and here's the reason there's still so many false teachers. I call it look-at-me theology. That's what I call a lot of these false teachers. They love look-at-me theology. Uh, because there's a lot of people who crave the attention and authority that most teachers have. They just crave that for themselves. And many people mistakenly think that when you become a teacher, you just organically get that respect. It just comes with the office. It's just instant. But respect never has been imparted or inherited, and it has always been earned. The only way you get respect is to earn it. But they look at this as the easy way, the easy way to get it. Now, think about it. What is it that makes a teacher respected? Okay, it's not just a title. It's how well they humbly surrender to God. That's what makes a teacher get well-respected, how much you surrender to God. And part of that humility is being careful to make sure you're studying so that you're teaching the Word accurately. I literally have had preachers tell me, uh, yeah, you know, they don't, they don't believe in outlines. This is some, where a lot of false teaching comes from. They don't believe in outlines. They say, I just get up in the pulpit and let God pour it on me. And I'm like, yeah, I heard that message. But I don't think God was the one doing the pouring. I'm just saying. It's their responsibility to humbly submit to God and study and deliver that word accurately right? And not just deliver it accurately, don't add to it and don't take away from it, which is where a lot of false teachers get off the reservation. Another part of that humility is to make sure that you're teaching with the right motives. And here's where we fall into some of the big problems we have today. Uh, some of the wrong motives include trying to profit, okay? There was a preacher, uh, there's a series on Netflix I was watching talking about the name of claimant, you know, theology, and this kid was kind of ratting them out, and he was saying that they would go and preach to the poor and try to raise money for the poor while staying in a $10,000 a night hotel. I got to know. Why was it worth ten grand? What was going on there? But they would stay in $10,000 a night hotels. So yeah, some of the wrong motives include profit. Uh, some just want to look righteous or smart or important, but we see those wrong motives, I mean, constantly in false teachers today. For example... We still have people today that claim to have the apostolic, apostolic gifts of healing, prophecy, and mystic languages. That still exists. I think it's a distraction, but it still, it still exists. And most do it because they want to control or take advantage of people. They like that feeling of being worshipped. 
right? So they want to take advantage of people, and they do that to make just insane profits. I'm going to tell you a story, and this is a true story. I knew of a man who was traveling around preaching. He was an evangelist, and he claimed to have the apostolic gift of healing. And so this local family who remained nameless had a blind child. And they decided they were going to take that blind child down to one of his crusades so that he might restore his sight. So they get down there with the blind child and they line him up to, you know, to meet with the handlers because the pastor had handlers. I have one handler, my wife. Get over here. No, he has many handlers. And so they walked up to his handlers and the handler said, oh, your son, is, or, your son or daughter's blind. Uh, we're not doing eyes today. <laughs> I wish that were a joke. That is honestly what happened. The irony is the apostolic hi- uh, gift of healing had nothing to do with other people's faith because at the gate called Beautiful, Peter and James were able to heal this person. All he asked for was money. He didn't even ask to be healed. They didn't have to have faith to be healed. Peter and them were able to heal them. They had the apostolic gift of healing. Paul would discard a cloth with sweat on it. Someone would pick it up and be healed. I mean, this is, that, that gift was, it wasn't arbitrary. They were able to heal anyone, anywhere. But they weren't doing eyes that day. You know, frustrating. I could go on that forever, trust me. Anyway, but I, here's the thing I really struggle with. I, I guess I don't understand why believers feel the need to sensationalize their gift and abilities. You know what I think the greatest gift we have is? Salvation. I, you know, if that's all he ever gave me, that's enough. You know what I mean? I got eternal life. And if I never have another gift, that's the greatest gift I could ever have. But here's what happens. When you start manufacturing gifts you don't have, or focusing on desiring gifts you don't have, it just keeps you from employing the gifts you do have that God wants you to use, right? So James wanted to make sure that they were called to teach before they did, because a lot of them just wanted it for the attention. Because those who are called, God is going to hold accountable for every work. And those who are truly called will do it so that Jesus gets the glory and not them. Anybody who's preaching in a way to draw glory to themselves probably isn't called. They probably shouldn't be up there, right? Now, next, James transitions from warning about teaching to just warning about speaking in general. And literally, I had to hold myself back. I could preach on this for a month, okay? But we're just going to, for time's sake, we won't. Uh, James 3, 2. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body as well. Okay, and I'm going to explain that. So James said the one that doesn't stumble in what they say could also be perfect. They could be perfect. Now the word perfect in the Greek is teleos, and it means completely flawless. It means completely flawless. So James was saying if a person could control their tongue, they could control everything. Their body, their thoughts, everything, if they could control their tongue. Now obviously James knew that no one could completely be flawless in any area of their life. But he was emphasizing the difficulty in trying to control our words. Now, let's be honest. There are times, have you said something you regret so fast that you don't even remember thinking about it? Anybody ever done that? Just me? Okay. You guys got to show me how you do that. But sometimes it just pops out. You know what I mean? Because we are sinful people, right? He was emphasizing it's really hard just trying to, you know, to control your language and the things you say. He didn't want people trivializing the importance of watching what they say. And he was afraid that's exactly what they're going to do. Because he knew that everyone has work to do in this area. Now we're going to look closer at that in verses 7 through 12 about what he meant actually there in verse 2. But 
I think this is really important because I do think sometimes we excuse our words like it's no big deal when it actually is a very big deal, and he proves that as we go throughout this. So one thing you're still going to find when you look in the Bible is that most of the troubles that we have in life, if you read the scriptures, come from our mouths. Our mouths get us in more trouble than anything else. For example, I hear Christians all the time judging and gossiping about people. And somehow, over the years, we've determined that's okay. That's not a serious sin. You know, you can't help but talk about people. You hear all this stuff. And here's the thing I found that the people who like to gossip and judge, they usually pick someone who is struggling with something that they deem really bad. The gossiper deems really bad, right? And consequently, it just so happens that it's never something they struggle with because their struggles aren't really bad. But everybody else's struggles are really, really bad. Let me give you some examples. Uh, A lot of the judgmental people, they love to judge people who struggle with drugs and alcohol and pornography and uh, dress codes and churches and music and relationships. The list goes on and on and on. I've literally heard Christian people, when talking to someone who's struggling with addiction, say, well, why don't you just quit? (laughs) And the addict's going, never thought of that. You know, judgmental, judgmental, judgmental. People love, love to do that. And all that self-righteous judgment comes from our inability to control our tongue. Why? Because not controlling the tongue comes naturally. But controlling the tongue takes a lot of work. Now, on a side note, uh, the things I mentioned that people judge, uh, love to judge people for, they all have one thing in common. Okay, none of the things I listed that people judge, you remember the addictions and all the things I listed? None of those things that I listed Uh, made a list that I call God's list of pet peeves. You're not going to find that in the Bible. That's what Chris calls it. God's list of pet peeves. It's found in Proverbs. God's list of pet peeves is how I describe the seven sins that God hates most. Now, sin is sin, but there are seven sins that God just really doesn't like. All right? They're the worst to him. Proverbs 6, 16 through 18. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So let me describe what these are. Haughty eyes is referring to someone who has a prideful or self-righteous attitude. Haughty is the same word as prideful. A lying tongue is exactly what it says. It's talking about a liar, right? A heart uh, or hands that shed innocent blood, this is talking about murderers, okay? Those are the first three things that God hates. Right now, it says a heart that devises wicked plans. This is a schemer. Have you ever met the schemer? Always trying to find an angle, always trying to find ways to get away with something, and it's always trying to plan evil things. Okay, so that's that's a schemer. Feet that run rapidly to evil. This is referring to people who have no reverence for God or His Word, and they are more concerned about doing what makes them feel good and what they like than they are with what God uh, what God thinks, and and that's what He's talking about. And the last one. Here is one who spreads strife among brothers. This is referring to backbiters, gossips, and potsters. Now, did you see drug or alcohol mentioned there? Can they be a sin? Absolutely. But it wasn't one of the top seven. Did you hear anything in there about pornography, anything in there about dress codes? None of that's in there. These are the things that make God's pet peeve list. Okay, these are the things that God hates the most. And most people, when they read this, are shocked to find out that their gossiping and backbiting is one of the most contemptible things you can do in the eyes of God. He listed gossip in the same sentence with murder. 
which makes sense because you can literally assassinate someone with your mouth behind their back. All right, this is, this is what he's talking about here. I mean, almost all these offenses are, are start with the tongue. So next, James focuses on just how dangerous not controlling our words are. And this is really awesome. I love this section. Starting in verse 3, he said, Now, if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder uh, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue, I love how passionate he is here. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I can just see James going, (laughs) he's done with that. I mean, he's passionate, right? So James was worried people would think that, you know, something as small as words just can't be dangerous. You know, sticks and stones, you guys all know that. Yeah, that's not true. (laughs) Words can definitely hurt you. And he was afraid people would adapt that. He didn't want them to think that way. So he compared the tongue, or the words we speak, to three small things that left unchecked do big damage. And I think this is funny. First one is a bit in a horse's mouth. How many people have ever rode horses in here? Okay, not a lot. Believe it or not, I used to. Um, And horses, you can direct a 1,200-pound horse by the bit that's in its mouth, and it's like that long. Just by pulling it one way or another, it directs the entire body. So that one small piece can control an entire huge beast, right? The second, he compares it to the rudder of a ship. Now, there's some of those cruise ships, the rudder might be, you know, as long as this room, but look how big the ship is. It's minuscule in comparison to the body of the ship, yet the entire ship is directed by that small rudder. It impacts the direction of that small rudder. That was uh, the second thing that he, uh, that he compared it to. Now, the third thing he compared it to was a small fire. How dangerous a small fire is. Now look at this. Ask anybody who lives in Southern California or any other dry areas in the country how deadly a small fire can be. I mean, seriously, sometimes something as small as one match dropped can burn millions of acres of land. And we have seen that how many times in the last 10 years? Millions of acres because one careless person drops a match. And in no time, it just destroys everything, houses, people. It's unbelievable. So that's a really good analogy because then James jumps off of that one and he says, and the tongue is a fire. He said, it's the very world of iniquity. I love this. And he said, it can set on fire the course of our lives and it gets, it, it gets its ignition from hell. I mean, that is huge. I love this comparison to fire because, listen, fire's used for one of two things in the Bible, to purify Or to destroy something. And since he said that our tongue is set on fire by hell, I'm thinking he's talking about the destructive part here. I think that's what he's talking about. Right? Now, the devil exists to try to steal the eternal life from people and hinder people who would share that eternal life with other people. That's what he exists for. And using the tongue is one of his favorite methods. Teaching us to use our mouth inappropriately is one of his favorite methods. Now, how many times... Has someone stopped coming to church or, or their faith became injured because they were a victim of malicious gossips? I've seen that so many times. People cannot keep their mouth shut and run people off a of church. How many marriages have been ended because of that? How many friendships, how many careers have been destroyed by gossip and by, and by hurtful words? The number is just unbelievable, right? 
I'd hate to stand before God someday knowing that my careless words injured someone's faith. I would hate to stand before God with that. I mean, imagine how powerful our words have to be to do that much damage. And that's what James is trying to get him to understand, right? And here's where he starts to explain verses, uh, verse 3, uh, or rather, verse 2 rather. Verse 7 through 12 kind of explains what James meant in verse 2 because it was kind of unclear. James 3, 7 and 8, he says, For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame what? No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of what? Deadly poison. Now remember what he said back in verse 2 about the tongue? Let's look at that again. He says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. What James was doing there is what's called a general impossibility. He was stating a general impossibility because he knew no one can control the tongue. It's like saying... If you could jump over a small building, you could probably also jump over a small mountain. I can't do either one. You see, that's what he was trying to say. He was bringing up a general impossibility, and he was using that scenario to teach that to people, right? Neither one's possible. That's, how, that's what he meant by that. Now, in verses 7 and 8, he compared the human tongue with a wild animal that can't be tamed. It, it, does anybody else think this is so accurate? Isn't this accurate? How many people here have ever been the victim of gossip? Raise your hands. How many people have ever been torn down by someone's words, someone close to you? Raise your hands. Right? It's affected everyone's life. He said it's like a wild animal that just can't be tamed. And I totally understand this comparison because we've all had our our, uh, out-of-control rants. Has anybody here ever had an out-of-control rant? Be honest. Where you just ranted and ranted, and when you were done, you're like, I really wish I hadn't said a bunch of that. Anybody here ever do that? My wife does. I don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's not here, so I'm really brave. All right, we all have our uncontrolled rants. And during those rants, you get mad, and someone may make you mad or hurt your feelings, and so you just verbally want to destroy them. You just want to verbally destroy them. And I'm going to give you an example. Okay, someone might say, well, she said that I, she didn't like the way I dress. Well, that's just because her big butt doesn't look good in anything she wears. That's why she says that. If she could find a man, Miss Ugly, she wouldn't be worried about what I'm wearing. You know what I mean? I've heard stuff like that all the time, and I'm like, yeah, you should calm down. Well, they deserve it. Have you ever been in one of those rants? And when you're done, you're thinking, wow, I probably shouldn't have said 97% of that. You know, that's the kind of things that happen to us. And afterwards, we feel guilty, but there's nothing you can do. I heard a preacher one time give some insight about trying to take back our words, which I'm going to actually read this verbatim. I've heard this many times, but I think it's hilarious. He said, trying to take back our hurtful words is like walking to the top of a mountain in a windstorm, ripping open a feather pillow and releasing all the feathers into that storm, and then trying to retrieve every feather again. He said, that's what it's like trying to take back the words that you've spoken. I think that is very, very, very powerful. Those are some of the truest words ever spoken. Now, I've often wondered if this topic was kind of personal to James. Because is it just me, or does it sound like he's a little miffed when he reads this, when he wrote this? Does it seem like it to you? I mean, I think that James probably had been, become the victim of gossip or, or false accusations because this was some very passionate writings, wasn't it? The tongue is a fire, and, you know, it's set on fire by hell, and it has the poison of snakes. And, I mean, somebody 
upset him, which makes sense, I mean, because, let's face it, Christianity wasn't very popular, and the Romans and the pagans and Jews all hated him, so they were constantly being persecuted, so he probably was the victim of that. Now, James finishes up his discussion, I think this is pretty cool, uh, about the tongue by pointing out its hypocrisy. Listen to this. James 3, 9 through 12. Speaking of the tongue, or our words, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. I wish I could be self-righteous and tell you I've never done that. But if you've ever ridden with me in traffic, I wasn't swearing, but I may have called people an idiot or time or two. Okay, Jeremy, don't make me confess. He's back there going, come on, keep going, keep going. But that's so true, right? It's at verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. I think this is powerful. Because what he's saying here is he's pointing out the hypocrisy in a believer who says they want to be like Jesus, who are named Christians in his namesake. And our goal is to be like Jesus and we can be in church. I've seen this before. People in church raising their hand, praising God, and I love that. And then Tuesday morning, they are cussing somebody up one side and down the other. And I, I love that he pointed this out. This is a very powerful truth. Believers, we need to learn to exercise some self-control because people are watching everything we do and listening to everything we say. They're just watching and listening constantly. And I hear people say, well, I don't worry too much about that because they're just looking for justification, you know, for not believing. That may be the case. Either way, I don't think it's worth the risk. Because if my rant or my careless words causes even one person to turn from Christ, I'd be terrified to stand before God. I would be terrified if some things I did and things I said turn people away from church or turn people away from Jesus. And I think this is why James probably went on this rant. Because I think it was happening regularly with the people he was writing to. And he was saying, you guys have got to stop this. You guys have got to stop being gossips and using these hurtful words. We have to learn, and he's trying to teach them, we have to learn that God takes this very seriously, so we need to also. Because I'm telling you, someday, those words will be replayed to you when you stand before God, believer or not. You will have to face those words you've spoken. And so this is why James was so passionate about this. Um, We'll pick up there next week. He even carries on a little bit more, but we'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And I know it seems strange when we're talking about gossiping and, <laughs> and being angry and saying things we shouldn't. But listen, the Word of God works in mysterious ways. It touches us in ways you can't even explain. So we always give people an opportunity. If you'd like me to pray for you, whether you're not sure where you stand with Christ or you just need prayer, make eye contact and you put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'll be praying for you. And I always do. Listen, we live in a dangerous world right now. We live in a world right now that wants you to forget there's a God and wants you to think it's all about you. But you know, I've never been to the bedside of anyone who wasn't concerned about God then. Anyone. In the times we live in, Christians, we are needed more now than ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus loved me enough to die on that cross for me. And I, I'm thankful that he didn't require that I become good enough. He didn't require I take classes. He just wanted me to believe in the love that took him to that cross. 
so that he could sacrifice himself and defeat death, hell, and the grave so that I could have eternal life just by believing in him. I'm thankful that you made it that easy because if you hadn't, we'd never get it. God, I just pray that if there's someone here or listening or watching who doesn't know you, that they would surrender themselves to you. If they can believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. If they make that decision, I pray they contact us. But God, those of us who are believers, it's so easy for us to get sucked into this world. It's so easy for us to lose our priorities. And before long, we look, act, and sound just like the world. God, give us a passion and a love, not just for you, but for the people that you sacrificed your son for. Let us be good examples. Let us be loving when we should be angry. God, we want them to see you working through us so they might come to you. Just use us, God, and give us a passion to be used. We just pray as we leave here today that you would keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we would come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.